Life with two young men in our home is always interesting. You get a lot of stories about my family. and um, It's amazing how within, without any provocation and without any inspiration from myself, everything in our home becomes a weapon. <laughs> if you notice that, on any given day, I could be sliced with lightsabers, shot with Nerf guns, and, and whatever else happens to be present, and... And they're just going at it in, in good fun and just having a lot of fun. And poor little Alicia, she's like, well, I guess I'm supposed to play with these things like weapons. And then she, she tries to make friends, and it, it's great. <laughs> Last week, I was trying to expose my children to a movie that Susie and I love, Sound of Music, that many of you know. And my boys are like, we got to watch Sound of Music? What's that about? I'm like, oh no, it's good. You know, there's, it's right before World War II and things are happening. And they're like, war? War's good. We get to the end of the movie and they enjoyed the movie. I think they secretly enjoyed the movie. They won't say that, but they enjoyed the movie. And we get to the end and they're like, dad, there wasn't very much war. Where was the shooting? I'm like, no, remember they chased them into the, the, the convent and they had the guns? Like, that's not war, dad. And my my boys were were disappointed in the movie. They don't appreciate some of the other aspects of the movie yet, because they were looking for an opportunity for courage and for loyalty and to stand up for a just cause. At least that's that's what I'm going to say they were looking for. <laughs> they said shooting. <laughs> but it's interesting just watching that grow in my young men as they become men as they want to stand for what is right. And, I, and I, it is one of my greatest joys to watch them take situations and to watch them when they, they, when they don't know I'm watching and to watch them stand for what is right. And this morning as we come back to 1 Timothy and we talk about being entrusted and entrusted with the Gospel, we come to a point where Paul is instructing his son in the faith how to stand for what is right. How to fight a just war. How to view ministry and how to view the spiritual walk. And as we come to this text and, and we yet again see Paul charging him, we can learn much. We can learn much about war and spiritual warfare and what God expects from us. Let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Lord God, I pray that as we open Your Word, and as we look at just a few short verses today, that Your Holy Spirit would challenge us. Lord, shake us out of some of our normal pathways of life to be about Your purpose, to make Your purpose our focus, God. In Jesus' name, Amen. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're just going to look at three verses this morning. Three verses where, where really Paul is reiterating what he already talked about earlier in the chapter and what he's going to talk about four more times throughout these books. But they, they serve as the core of what it means to be entrusted. What it means to be about His purpose. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. I just want to read the three verses to start out and then we'll go back and unpack them a little bit. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme." And so Paul here, if you remember where we've been, at the beginning of chapter 1, Paul charges Timothy in 3-7, through and he urges him to stand up to some of the false teachers in the church, to stand up for what is right in the church. Evidence is that those, false, those people teaching falsehood were leaders in the church, and they had veered from the faith. And we're going to find out even a little bit from verse 20, possibly how they were veering from the faith. And so he, he challenges them back in verse 3. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any, certain, any different doctrine. And I can picture Timothy getting this and say, oh great, give me an easy assignment, why don't you? You want me to go in and, and tell the leaders of this church that they are not walking with God, that they are not teaching truth. And so Timothy is given really a, a very difficult assignment here. 
Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And Pastor Andrew did a great job of explaining those verses and how the aim of our charge is love and that confrontation takes place in love and because God is accomplishing something in His church. And then from there, we saw Paul digress a little bit as he does, as he just gets excited and he talks about how the law brings us to Christ and the gospel. And then last week, we looked at, at Paul sharing his testimony, saying, Jesus changed my life. He changed my life, and so I have no choice but to use my conversion and use my life for Him and His purpose. So now in verse 18, he gets back to what he was talking about. He always does. Gets back and says, okay, back to Timothy. Back to this charge. And so 18 through 20 serve as a key verse in this whole passage of what Timothy is being charged to do. And it starts with this charge I entrust to you. And Paul here is using military language. Charge was a, a command from a commanding officer. This isn't just, oh, you know, maybe do this. But this is a military word that's a command from a superior saying, this is urgent, this is vital, this is what you are to do. As we look at all of verse 18, this is a call to war. This is a call to spiritual battle. And so point number one of just a few points we're going to grab out of this passage, point number one is be battle engaged. You've heard the term be battle ready. Our military is always battle ready. They can go to battle at any time. Uh, when we were in Israel, our, our guide was part of the reserves there. And within two hours, he had to be battle ready, to be ready to, to go at the station if need be. But God isn't asking us to be battle ready. He's asking us to be battle engaged. Spiritual warfare isn't coming. It's already here. It's already upon us. It was for Timothy. It is for us today. And so Paul says, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Some of your versions may say, fight the good fight, a phrase that we use often. And Paul here is saying, Timothy, it's time to fight. I know I've put you in a difficult situation. I know the task seems overwhelming, but this is battle and it's time to step up and fight. I think of our lives, there's so many times that we face situations that we're like, God, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to deal with the situation at work and keep my testimony. I don't know how I'm going to deal with my family and lead them well. But God has put us in spiritual warfare always equipping us and always giving us instruction from our superior that we can do this. And so the, the challenge here is to fight the good fight, the spiritual warfare, to wage war. And, and Timothy, when he hears this, would think, oh great, here's the false teachers again. I need to go back and challenge them. But Paul is, is equipping and encouraging Timothy to do this. He's, and we're going to unpack that with some of these words here. He's giving Timothy the tools and the strength to go out and fight this fight for God. What is the good fight? The good fight is the good fight of faith. We see that in 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so Paul is calling Timothy to stand up for the truth of God's Word. To know it to defend it, to live it, to hold it dearly. And it's a reminder to us that we are in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual battle right here, right now. This is a grueling spiritual battle, one author wrote. You're in a grueling spiritual battle, not a pleasant rural retreat. When you think of Sound of Music, you may think of a walk through the Alps. Just, you know, the flowers and music. and We're in a battle. We're in a battle for souls, for the souls of the, the apartments across the street. For those kids that come to Awana, for those kids that are coming to Vacation Bible School. We do that because we are here for God's purpose. We are fighting a good war. A just war. That word for good, wage the good warfare, is the idea of noble. 
that this is a noble cause, this is a just cause. There's so many arguments whenever there's a war, right? Should we be in this country? Should we be in this country? Paul is saying this is a noble war. We are on the side of God Almighty. He is our commanding officer. And he said, let's let's go to battle. Let's do business. And, and, And we think so many times of Christianity as... I've accepted Christ. I've got my fire insurance. I can come and fellowship with the saints and sit back and relax. And that is not the way God presents Christianity. That is not Christianity because we're not fighting for His purpose. We're not waging war. Christianity isn't about being in Hawaii. It's not even about being at Camp Pendleton and in training and getting ready for war. It's about being in Afghanistan. And saying, as we go out those doors, and even while we're sitting here, we are waging a spiritual battle. Are our thoughts and minds directed to Christ? Is our heart for His purpose? Or are we thinking about other things? Turn over real quickly to 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. through 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. through As Paul talks about spiritual warfare, I encourage you to read Ephesians 6 as well. But in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, we read, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You catching what he's saying? Yes, we're here in the flesh on earth, but this is not our war. It's divine. It's, it's a spiritual war. And we, as God's children, have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. See, the good news is, while we're to be battle-engaged, we know who the commanding officer is. And we know who wins. We sang this morning, God is able. And did you hear the words of that chorus? The words of his, that He defeated sin. He conquered the grave. We serve an omnipotent God who is our commanding officer and says, follow me into battle. And so I wonder sometimes, why are we resistant to the spiritual warfare side of things? Why are, are we wanting to be just comfortable? Why don't we step out and, and challenge people with the Gospel and stand for the Gospel? And I think we love being comfortable. We love being comfortable. Paul here is encouraging Timothy to step out of his comfort zone, to do something that was not easy, but something that was vital for the health of the church. And, and, and as we look at, at verse 18, look at some of the things that Paul tells Timothy to help him. Because Timothy would, would need strength here. He needs encouragement, just like we do at times. When we're tired and don't feel like pressing on, And there's four things that Paul does here in his conversation with Timothy. The first is the word charge that he starts 18 with. Remember that these are battle orders, not suggestions. Remember that these are battle orders, not suggestions. And remember who is giving the order. When we don't feel like doing something, it can motivate us. These are things that can motivate us to know that God Almighty is giving the order. When you're at work, does it, does it change your motivation to do something depends, depending on who gives the instruction? Absolutely. If someone underneath you says, hey, I'd like you to go do such and such. <laughs> okay, why don't you go do it? But if your boss who signs your paycheck says, I'd like you to go do such and such, what do you do? You go do such and such. It doesn't matter if you're tired. It doesn't matter if you wish you had an hour and a half lunch break. You go do what he said because there's authority there. That's where Paul starts. He says, I charge you. I charge you. I entrust this charge to you. This is a charge that Paul is communicating from God. So remember that these are battle orders, not suggestions. When we're tired, when we don't feel like ministry, when we, when we think, man, I'm not seeing any results. I do this over and over, week after week, and no one's even said thank you. Remember that these are battle orders from our commander-in-chief. 
Second thing there that Paul does with the word entrust, this charge I entrust to you, is to remember the value and privilege of being entrusted. Remember the value and privilege of being entrusted. And we've talked about entrust a a number of times, but it has this idea of taking something of great value and placing it in the care of someone else. But there's always the nuance in the Greek and as it's used throughout the New Testament that you place it in the care of someone else so that they can use it appropriately so they can pass that on and place it in the care of yet someone else. A transmission to others. It's the idea of our theme, reproduce. The idea of of passing on our faith. And we see that in 2 Timothy 2 where, where Paul says, entrust what you've received from me to other men who will be able to entrust other men And you get and so on and so on and so on. And so Paul's reminding Timothy of the value of the gospel. The value of the faith. He's helping helping Timothy see the weight of of what he's entrusted with. The weight and value. We're riding along this week and Mark yelled up from the back of the car, Daddy, how did you propose to Mommy? Cool, I could talk about this all day. And, and went on to, to share the story and shared the story of how I got a, a ring for her and, and put it in a pie tin and made it look like a pie. And then I handed that pie tin to someone else who was making dinner for us that night. And I can still remember vividly that that ring was not in my possession. I had entrusted it to someone else. Something of great value. If they lose it, where would I be today? No, hopefully we'd still be married. (laughs) And I remember her, Bonnie, many of you know Bonnie, Bonnie bringing out this pie tin and Susie opening it and we were on a boat and I'm thinking, what if Susie accidentally throws the ring because she's so excited? I was hoping she would be excited. And, and, um, and it goes in the water and this, this thing of value that I've entrusted to her would be lost. And so that was consuming my thoughts as I handed off what, what was a, a key to my future, I felt at the time. But that is nothing compared to the value of what Jesus has done in our lives that God has entrusted us to pass on to others. That's nothing. What has Jesus done in your life? What has He done in your life? Do we see that as something of value? Paul is saying to Timothy, I am entrusting to you something of great value and it's the Gospel. Be entrusted. Spend some time thinking of what Jesus has done in your life and the value that that brings. Paul goes on in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy my child. My son, some of the translations say. And Paul here, the the letter C there, remember those that have invested in you. And Paul's coming alongside Timothy and saying, I know that the challenge is hard. I know that spiritual warfare is not easy. I know that standing up for truth is not easy, but I am with you. You are my son in the faith. Remember the relationships that you have. Those that have invested in you. When I, when I watch our young people growing up and when I watch them serving God or standing in the faith, one of the things that I encourage them and for those that aren't at Wildwood, I encourage you to do is remember those that have invested in you. It's so easy as you get to college and beyond to say, oh, there's, there's brighter things and I want to try something new. And, and we walk away from those that have built into our lives and we're walking away from what God has put in our lives to keep us on track for Him. And I've rarely seen that go well. I challenge you to remember your Pauls. To remember the men and women that can say, you are my child in the faith. I am praying for you. I am with you. This is about discipleship. We see Paul discipling Timothy. Timothy is going to go on and disciple others. Those relationships mean something. In the last few weeks, I've heard of a number of, of more discipling relationships starting in accordance with our, our push these last two years for discipleship. And I'm thrilled because it's, 
It's people coming along and having sons and daughters in the faith. Before the, the sons and daughters in the faith, it's having a parent in the faith that says, we stand in this together. In our military, they have something called battle buddies. And, and I used to laugh with my nephew. I'm like, really? They call it battle buddies? It's the army. Shouldn't it be like battle soldiers or something like that? And, no, no, they're battle buddies. I'm like, are you okay with that? He goes, yeah. That person has my back. That person's with me. I'm not alone. And he still contacts his battle buddy. Paul's saying to Timothy, I'm your battle buddy. You're my son in the faith. My child in the faith. Challenge you, if you don't have those kinds of relationships, get in them. Disciple someone. Be discipled. Talk to me if you don't have that and you want that. Get into community groups. This week, get into community groups and let's talk about our faith and stand with each other. Finally, to keep Timothy motivated, Paul has said, remember that these are battle orders from your commander-in-chief. Remember the value and privilege of being entrusted. Remember those that have invested in you. And finally, remember your calling. Remember your assignment. The rest of verse 18 there. Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. There's lots of discussion about what this means, these prophecies that were previously made about him, but, but we see several examples of when a, a man was coming into ministry, when a man was being sent into ministry, the elders of the church or the leaders of the church would come around him and they would fast and they would pray and they would lay hands on him and commission him. And at the time, they would often say things about their ministry. That they would give prophecies. Words from God about what this man would be doing for Christ. And what these older men had seen in his life. So this quite possibly had happened at Timothy's ordination. Flip over just to chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. We see another reference to it. Which gives us an idea of what's happening. 1 Timothy 4.14 do not neglect the gift you have. Again, Paul is encouraging Timothy, boosting him up, saying, you can do this. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And so the picture here is other men in the faith, women in the faith, for, for us, for, for Timothy, men in the faith, coming alongside and saying, this is what God's doing in your life. This is how you're gifted. This is your calling. We confirm that. On my computer, I have pictures that come up and it, it just rotates through all the pictures on my hard drive, which can be interesting sometimes when it's just like logos and whatever. But one of the pictures that comes up was from um, five years ago at my ordination. And, and a picture of the men here coming alongside and putting their hands on and saying, we believe God has gifted you and equipped you for this purpose. And talk about motivation. And talk about encouragement. Because it's a reminder of God's call. Not what I want to do. Not, not what, what is appealing at the moment. But God's call. I remember a professor saying, don't go into the ministry until there's nothing else you can do. And the idea wasn't that you're not good at anything else, and so, hey, why not be a pastor? The idea is that your, your passion and your calling is so directed to God's purpose that there's just nothing else you can do. And, and my challenge is that every believer has a calling from God. Maybe not to be in vocational ministry, and maybe not to go quit your job, but at your job, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, every believer has a calling for God, from God. It's our assignment. God doesn't enlist soldiers and leave them on the sidelines. He equips them, He gives them assignments and says, let's go do battle. That's what Paul's reminding Timothy of here. Don't neglect your gift. We saw examples of that in Acts with Paul and Barnabas being sent out and, and elders being commissioned. God appoints, God equips, and the strength is from Him. Remember where God has gifted you. Now, now, to find where God has gifted you, we have to be involved in the battle. We have to be battle-engaged. 
trying different ministries, trying to tell people about the gospel, trying to serve. And then God will show us by His blessing and by His, His hand where we are gifted. But what's interesting is Paul's reminding Timothy of his gifting, of his calling. And one of the things that we can do as a church family and as a, a, a way of encouraging each other is not just on Sunday say, hey, I hope you had a good week, or hey, you look nice today, oh, that hairstyle's really great, or whatever. What if we took some time and we encouraged people with how we see God using them? Hey, you know, I, I saw you working with the kids the other day, and those kids were listening, and they heard the gospel. I think one responded. Thank you for serving God. Hey, I saw you giving the devotion of the men's softball the other day. That was great. Thank you for serving in that way. God is using you. We could go on and on through the ministries. Hey, I saw you doing sound, or I saw you putting this together at the church. If that is the nature of our encouragement, now we are challenging each other to fight the good fight instead of just come and be on a cruise together. This week, I challenge you to encourage someone here at Village. How have you seen God using them? Because you are building into their lives their calling. Be battle-engaged, not just ready. Wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight. We're in a spiritual battle. I'd like to just pause for a moment and do some spiritual battle because it's happening all around us. But this morning... We have 33 of our our own going up to Wildwood. And I know that God intends to capture some of their hearts this week and to, to, to break down some walls this week. But are we going to do spiritual battle for them and pray for them and lift them up? We have nine or ten going down south to Royal Family Kids Camp to serve as, as in a variety of leadership capacities there to kids that desperately need God's love to abused children, to to neglected children, to foster children. Talk about going into the trenches, going into the battle. Well, those nine or ten need to know that they have prayer covering from their church family. Because that is a huge opportunity. I've seen the results in our family of what showing Christ's love to some of those kids can do. So I like to just stop for a minute and pray. And, and I invite you, just wherever you're at, pray just a couple sentences for our, our students going up north, for our leaders going down south, and let's do battle right here on our knees. Let's pray. And our students going up north, that you would open their hearts to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in their lives, to convict them, to challenge them, to keep them on course for you. Lord, I pray for, for the Royal Family Kids Camp down south. Lord, these kids have been so affected by sin in this world and evil in this world. I pray that our people there would shine bright. That they would show Your love. Lord, give them strength. Give them strength in difficult situations with kids that are hurting. Lord, keep them going for all week. We lift them up to You, excited to see the results. In Jesus' name, Amen. And I ask for a commitment. Some of you I'm going to ask, um, will you pray for our group at Wildwood every day this week? Every day. Others, will you pray for the group down south? So anyone that is willing to say, you know what, I'm going to pray for the kids up at Wildwood that God will grab their hearts this week, will you raise your hand? Will you commit to doing that? doesn't have to be everybody, but just if you can, commit to that. Others of you, are you willing to pray for the group in San Diego that is dealing with, with hurting and angry and frustrated kids? that they'd have strength for that task? How many of you are committing to pray for them every day this week? Thank you. Thank you. This is being battle-engaged on our knees with the most important thing we can do. Lift them up to God Almighty. That's verse 18. Verse 19, Paul goes on and, and he gives Timothy two ways that he can fight the good fight. Two sort of breakdowns of what it means to fight the good fight. And the first is to know what you are fighting for. Hold tight to the faith. Know what you are fighting for. Hold tight to the faith. First two phrases, or first phrase of verse 19, actually holding faith and a good conscience. 
These are the two things, points number two and three actually, of of what Paul is challenging Timothy to hold to, to challenge the church to do. He says, know what you're fighting for. Know the content of the battle. Know what you believe. Take it seriously. That's the holding faith. And the idea of that word is to have and to hold. Sound familiar? We use that in wedding vows, don't we? To have and to hold. That, that you have it, you possess it. In this case, you possess faith. You know faith. But you hold it, meaning you cherish it. You hold it dear. NIV says to hold on to faith. And so the idea that Paul is saying is it starts with what you know about God, what you know about His Word. Do you know what you believe? And so many times, the church in America, we can just fall into the trap of Sunday morning is going to give me enough to know what I believe. Give me my little shot in the arm. I'm going to be able to face everything this week. But that, you will never know what you need to know completely just by what you hear on Sunday morning. I'm not that good. I can't do that in 45 minutes every week. The challenge here is to be in God's Word. To know what you believe. To be studying God's Word. To have a faith that you can defend. That you are absolutely solid in your understanding of. It's... It's so difficult to watch people stray from the faith. To watch people give a lip knowledge but never have dug into it. Never have created roots in the faith and then walk away. Just go back and look at some of your old friends on Facebook. Some of the ones that said they were walking with God 20 years ago. And just see how many still are. That's a result from not holding the faith. Not knowing what they believe. And so Paul's encouragement to Timothy, fight the good fight, it means to know what you're fighting for. To know the cause. Now that may seem like a daunting task. But it isn't. Just to pick a book of the Bible. Start with one book. Start by reading through one book multiple times. It's helpful to not just skim it, but to read a book several times. Get a good study Bible. And, and take the, read the notes underneath so you begin to understand what it's saying. Take some time, a little bit of time each day, and know what you believe. One of the, the tools that we have for discipleship here is called Design for Discipleship. And it's a series of seven little workbooks from NavPress that you can take someone else through, or you can just grab someone else in the church and say, let's go through this together. And it starts with the essentials of the faith and covers what we believe covers the foundation of the faith. And, and I don't care if you've been a Christian 40 years or, or four months, this is a valuable resource to make sure we know what we believe. And just this week, I gave out several more copies to another group that was going to start discipling. And they're excited about going through it. But it's hard to fight a war if you don't know what you're fighting for. It's easy to give up if you don't know what you're fighting for. And so Paul says, hold faith. Timothy, hold it tight. Know what you're fighting for. Second part of that phrase, which is point number three, is to have a good conscience. And so live battle qualified. Trying to work in the battle theme there. Live battle qualified. Hold tight to a good conscience. And basically Paul is saying to live what you believe. And he's combining the head and and the actions here. You know, we we have all kinds of debate. Well, should I act like a Christian or, or... Or is it enough just to know God's Word? Yes, both. We should do both. This is James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. What we believe affects what we do or we don't believe it. It's really that simple. And Paul is saying you need to know what you believe, but then live it with a good conscience which he's dealing with obedience here. Do it. Put it into practice. Practice what you preach. It's not just about the head knowledge, it's how you live. That's the test, isn't it? That's the test. I talk with people sometimes that know the Bible backwards and forwards, but have never given their life to Christ. They can tell you chapter and verse on any doctrinal issue you want, but they have never surrendered to Christ. They have never ordered their life around His purpose. And they're only doing half of what Paul says is the good fight. It's what we believe 
and what we do. And Paul's combining both. See, God's truth, when we truly understand it, it requires an ethical obedience. It requires a response. It demands a response. And so Paul says, live with a good conscience. And he's simply meaning, know that you have lived what you've preached. It's vital. It's vital in ministry. You you can think of examples where, of course, it's vital for you, Pastor Ron. If I see you out cussing out a clerk at Target, and then we come and talk about God's Word on Sunday, I'm not listening so much. But it's not just vital for me, it's vital for you. It's vital for every one of us as we come and minister, as we come and do battle for the King. This was a topic that Paul kept bringing up throughout his writings. As you read Paul's writings, just see how many times he talks about a clear conscience. And he's talking about making sure our life matches what we teach. In Acts 23.1, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Acts 24.16, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards God and man. Romans 9.1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. We're talking integrity. Integrity. And fighting the good fight not only means standing for the faith, defending it, it means living it with all integrity. Living it with a clear conscience. Calvin wrote, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. It's absolutely true. Because if we're not living what we say, it doesn't really matter what we say. And it's easy to slip with just a little compromise and, and use the ends to justify the means that are sinful. And we sear our conscience. And Paul here is reminding Timothy, and he's going to remind him several times throughout these two books, live what you say. Have a good conscience. A clear conscience. Because our faith, what we truly believe, comes out in our actions. Interesting, in the, in the Cola Wars, something happened that startled a lot of people back just a few years. An administrative assistant at Coca-Cola's Atlanta headquarters left work with classified materials in her purse. The recipe. Which, you know, it's Coke. If it was Dr. Pepper, maybe we'd have something. Had reports on upcoming products, future promotions, and even a beverage sample for something coming up. So with the help of a couple of other employees, she sent a letter to Pepsi saying, you know what? For a price, this can be yours. So Pepsi had a choice at that time. Could have seriously damaged Coke. So Pepsi officials responded. Except they didn't respond like this employee intended. They contacted Coke. And then they all called the FBI. And they set up a sting, and because in negotiations, Pepsi had worked out for $1.5 million. Surprise, surprise. We'll buy these things. FBI's there, take them into custody, people go to jail. People were shocked at integrity. Pepsi spokesperson said, we were just doing what any responsible company would do. Despite the fierce competition in this industry, it should also be fair. I'm not saying these people were believers. I don't know if they were believers. But isn't it interesting that a story like that made the news about integrity, about a company that was willing to stand up for what was right? As believers, as holding to the true faith, how much more should we stand for what's right in every aspect of life? And what kind of news will that make? It's part of waging the good warfare. Live battle qualified. Hold tight to a good conscience. Live what you believe. And if you're gonna, if we're, if we're gonna do this, we need to treasure what we're entrusted with. We need to treasure our faith more than anything else. Treasure obedience more than any other benefit we can get. Because really, when we disobey God, when we compromise, we are saying something else is of more value than God Almighty. It's what we're saying. 
And so if we're to have a integrity and a good conscience, we have to value God and His instructions more than anything else. We need to beware of creep, I call it, not creeps. Beware of creep, those small compromises that just start to whittle their way in. When we were on the college camping trip a few weeks ago, we visited Devil's Post Piles in these columns of volcanic rock, hard rock. If you go to the edge, they're crumbling away. Because in small cracks, water gets in and it freezes and it spreads and it just crumbles these columns away. It's the way small compromises work in our lives. A single choice to say, this doesn't matter as much. I'm just going to fudge this number a little bit. You know what? I'm just going to color the truth a little bit. And the column's crumbling. And our conscience is seared. Live battle qualified. Make sure that if we do compromise, that we confess every sin. Deal with it. Do not let sin build up. Because sin breeds sin. Do whatever it takes to be prepared for battle. To live battle qualified. Finally, the fourth point. rest of the phrase. The results of failure are treacherous. The results of failure are treacherous. 19b and 20. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's an interesting passage. Lots has been written about this. But, But starting at the beginning, but rejecting this, what is Paul talking about? NIV says these, and they're lumping holding to good faith and good conscience together. But the Greek doesn't allow for that. The Greek is clearly singular, and it's pointing back to the clear conscience. Paul is is challenging. He is calling out members of the church right here, saying their lives don't match what they're teaching. Their lives don't match what they're teaching, and this is the result. Wouldn't you love to be those two when this letter is being read in the church? But that is how important it is to have a clear conscience, to live what we believe, to not allow any shred of compromise. So Paul says, by rejecting this, a clear conscience living their faith, and that rejecting is a deliberate, willful rejecting, knowing the truth, deciding not to follow it, they have made a shipwreck of their faith. Paul knew about shipwrecks. He'd been through three. Nearly lost his life watched others lose their lives. And it was a term that was used of just wrecking your life to be a spiritual mess. Tragedy and downfall. Paul's saying if if we don't live what we believe, if we don't fight the good fight, if we say we're believers but we're not about God's purpose, We make a shipwreck of our faith. It's challenging. People at Ephesus would have known that. It was one of the most prominent seaports in the area. They had to deal with shipwrecks all the time. And Paul goes on to say, I've handed them over to Satan. Mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. There's, There's discussion of what does that mean? What does it mean to hand someone over to Satan? Possibly it's about letting Satan do physical harm to them like God did with Job. But this is a phrase that was used enough that we have a really clear picture that it's handing them over to the realm of Satan. Removing them from the realm of the Spirit, which is the church, and handing them over, leaving them to the world and the realm of Satan. And it's a phrase that was used for putting someone out of fellowship. For putting someone out of the church. And so Paul is saying these men, they're teaching and not living what they're teaching. Their teaching is false, we know from other verses. They need to be put out of the church. I have handed them over to Satan. And that's serious stuff. But the purpose, see the purpose there. It's not to to be cruel. It's not to destroy their lives. But that last phrase, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
that they may learn not to blaspheme. The goal here is restoration. The goal is learning. But it's interesting that Paul's calling not living what you believe blasphemy. Because we are challenging the reputation of God. When I say I'm a believer and I don't live like it and people see that, I am insulting the name of God. I am defaming God. If we're to fight the good fight, if we're to take this seriously, we need to see that the consequences are serious. The results are treacherous. A shipwrecking of the faith. Blasphemy. How we live makes a difference. How we live makes a difference. I told a story to the college group a couple weeks ago of a time when I was driving as a teenager. And, and I, I, I drove like an idiot when I was a teenager. I don't know how else to say it. And, and I was driving on the shoulder and passing cars and cutting cars off. And um, don't do all that. Sorry, Mom and Dad, it was your car. <laughs> um, <laughs> the things you learn at church. <laughs> Oh boy, it's going to be an interesting week. <laughs> I remember coming to a red light, almost to school, and the car behind me, um, the guy was just ticked. He was mad, and he gets out, and he pounds on my window. And um, I wasn't thinking clearly, because I rolled down my window. A different time, I guess. And he's yelling at me, and he says, this is why I will never be a Christian. There's a fish on the back of the car. And my life, defamed God. I'll never forget that. Changed how I drove from that moment on. What in our lives defames God? What in our lives brings glory to God? That's the challenge that Paul is giving. Fight the good fight. Hold the faith. Hold clear conscience. And this is the result if you don't. The people in this church wanted to be right. They wanted to be seen as teachers of the law. But you can be right and still be a blasphemer if our lives don't match our faith. We are charged. We are entrusted with the gospel. Know your faith. Live your faith. And see what God will do. I'm going to end with a story. Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, right after the, the Reformation started, so just after Luther, and he's interacting with Luther and some of those men. And Thomas Cranmer was a man that um, didn't always know what he believed. He was willing to change his stance at times depending on who was king, depending on, on some of the political issues of the day. Wrote a book of common prayer. And some of the things in there were good. Some of it was denouncing Luther and some of the Reformation. But then he eventually chose to stand for truth and chose to stand for some of the truth of the Reformation. And he watched a couple of his his cohorts burned at the stake. And after he watched that, he he looked at it, he was approached by the church, and the church was said, this is you unless you recant. And he recanted. And he wrote out a statement saying that he no longer believed that truth. But he couldn't live with that. He couldn't live with it, and and he came along later on, on what would be the day before of his execution. And he wrote this, And now I come to the great thing which so much troubleth my conscience, more than anything I ever did or said in my whole life, And that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to the truth, which now here I renounce and refuse as things written with my hand contrary to the truth, which I thought in my heart and written for fear of death to save my life, if it may be. And he's saying on on this time, the church expected him to now recant again publicly, and he publicly says, I was wrong. This is truth. And even if it kills me, I am standing for this. And he goes on and says, And for as much as my hand hath offended, because he wrote the, the, um, his, his recantation with his hand, 
For as much as my hand hath offended, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall first be punished. For when I come to the fire, it shall first be burnt. And the story goes that as he was being burned at the stake the next day, he put his hand down to make sure it was first burned. What's interesting to me about that story is that it's a man who blew it. He messed up. He messed up in the battle, but he turned around and did what was right, and God used him. And just as we talked about last week with Paul, God can use every one of us, and we're enlisted as his soldiers. So let's do spiritual battle. Let's stand for what's right, know what we believe, and live what we believe. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, Lord, impress on our hearts that this is not ordinary life that we're living. That this is a spiritual battle for the souls of the lost. That you have a purpose that you have enlisted us to and asked us to be part of, commanded us to be part of. Lord, help that to change how we live. Help us to help that to change how we live our lives. Help that to motivate us to know Your Word, to know our faith, but to live it. Lord, I pray that even this week that You would reveal in each of our lives any shreds of compromise, any ways that we aren't living it. Lord, I pray that You would challenge us to be in Your Word and that this week we would be a congregation and in weeks to come we would be a congregation reading Your Word and studying Your Word. Lord, because it's the battle plan. What could be more important? Forgive us, God, because we don't see your purpose as important. Lord, may we live for you. May you do great things through this church. Lord, I am, I am excited and expectant of our kids when they return and our leaders when they return to hear what you have done this week because we have done battle for the King. Lord, I'm excited to see what you're going to do with VBS and these kids, these young lives that need you. I'm excited of what you're doing with the missions trip to Kosovo and the missions trip to Yugo. And I'm excited to hear what you're doing with discipleship in this church because that is spiritual battle. What you're doing when people share your name at work because that is spiritual battle. Lord, thank you for the work of your Spirit and for how you're moving. We do battle for you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.